Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. I'm glad you joined us today. It seems more and more that we live in times of uncertainty, and there's a lot happening around us in the world today. And despite our challenges, I am so optimistic about what the future holds for you and for me. And I hope this podcast can help you to get a better view of your place in the world and how to live to your potential. And when we're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to share this podcast with a friend. It just might be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the greatest thing you will ever do. A week before Eric Mayer started his freshman year of high school, he discovered that he lost his eyesight. He called out to his parents and told them that it had finally happened. You see, at three years old, the doctors had diagnosed him with retinoschisis, a rare congenital eye disease that would cause his retinas to slowly detach from the center of his pupils. The doctors told him that he would lose his sight sometime in his early teens. And now, despite his optimism that he could prolong the day, he had, in fact, lost his sight. Like my friend Jake Olson, who lost his sight as a young teenager to cancer, when Eric lost his sight, there was a bit of relief. He had lived so long with the worry of losing his sight, sort of an in-between state of worry. When it actually happened, he no longer had to worry. It was done. However, the extreme realization came over him of what life would be like without his sight. And soon, Eric was angry, angry at the world, angry at his situation. He resented the fact that he could no longer see while those around him could. When he attended high school, the sounds of everyday life surrounded him, but he felt separate and apart from what was going on. And after his anger subsided, then came denial. At first, he didn't want to learn Braille. He didn't try at school because he felt pity from everyone, including his teachers. He hated his canes. He refused to use them until he fell and made one mistake after another in his attempts to navigate where he was going. His story told in the book, What's Within You, says, then finally the truth hit him in the face, literally. One day, Eric was riding home from school in a van designated for disabled students by the district. As was his habit at the time, Eric was complaining to the driver. Eric told the driver he wasn't blind and that he belonged on a bus with his sighted friends. The driver, having grown tired of Eric's constant haranguing, pulled off to the side of the road and had Eric step from the van. Suddenly, Eric felt a basketball bounce off his face. The driver stated the obvious, Eric, you can't catch a basketball, you're blind. The words were harsh, but they were true. The driver then instructed Eric to hold out his hands, preparing him to catch the ball, and he threw the basketball and Eric caught it in his readied hands. The driver said, Eric, stop fighting people, Let people help you. Thanks to his driver's brutal honesty, Eric finally saw the reality of his situation. And to transcend his adversity, he had to embrace it. And from that day forward, Eric wanted to define himself by what he could do, not by what he couldn't. And it was this shift in mindset that prompted him to try out for the wrestling team. Wrestling was a sport for which Eric was well-suited. In fact, it played to his strengths. It was a sport where feeling and touch mattered more than sight. In addition, hearing could be an asset. Eric could locate his opponent by the sound of their footfalls on the mat. Eric went 0-15 and in his first year on the team. He continued to train and improve. And by his senior year, he would notch 
33 wins and be named team captain. Then Eric received a newsletter from an organization that was offering to take blind teens rock climbing. At first, he thought, who'd be crazy enough to take a blind kid rock climbing? But his second thought was, why not? So he signed himself up, and to his surprise, he took to the rock like a duck to water. As his hands passed over the grooves and edges of the rock face in search of holds, he realized that climbing was not so different from reading Braille. Just like the raised dots he had learned to interpret, the indentations and bumps in the rocks held information for him. So Eric began climbing at the age of 16, and from then on, he was hooked. During breaks from semesters in college, he would escape to far-off places to climb, Peru, Pakistan, and the highlands of Irish Jaya. After graduating from college, he trained in Arizona, Colorado, and Utah, hoping he could build up the stamina and strength to climb the tallest mountain in North America, Denali, which stands proud at over 20,000 feet in the Alaska Range. Well, after a month-long grueling training regimen, Eric and a climbing team started their ascent of Denali. 19 days later, he reached the summit of that mountain on a day that turned out to be Helen Keller's birthday. Well, that successful climb gave Eric the confidence to continue his attempts to climb the seven summits, the tallest mountains on each continent. He would soon conquer all of those mountains except for the tallest, Everest. Eric knew that climbing Everest was as treacherous and as challenging as people made it sound. For starters, 90% of those who attempt the summit ultimately fail. The journey up the south face of the mountain is a grueling obstacle course that begins with a jumble of ice boulders of varying sizes. And such a trek requires months, if not years, of training. On top of that, there are countless ways for the mountain to take your life. You could fall through an ice shelf. You could experience a cerebral edema. An avalanche could bury you alive. Eric attempting to climb Everest would be courageous, but also crazy. After two weeks of planning and preparation, he began his ascent of Mount Everest. On stage one of the ascent, he was slow. His team was questioning the decision to bring him along. And Eric could hear the double creeping into their voices. If they didn't go faster, they would never summit. One team member actually suggested carrying Eric's gear for him, lightening his load so he could move faster, but Eric wouldn't hear it. He had to be an integral member of the team. So he redoubled his efforts. And on May 25th, 2001, Eric became the first blind person to ever reach the summit of Mount Everest. It felt like the greatest thing Eric could ever accomplish. And yet, once Eric descended the mountain and reached the bottom, Pasquale, his expedition leader, grabbed him by the shoulder and said, don't make Everest the greatest thing you ever do. Can you imagine? A blind man climbs the tallest mountain in the world. He's the first one. And the response he gets is effectively, Okay, now what else are you going to do with your life? Eric was stunned. But Pasquale wasn't trying to downplay or diminish Eric's accomplishment. Instead, he was giving a new lens to Eric for his outlook on life. While Eric's feat was highly impressive, it needed to be viewed as part of a greater narrative. Eric needed his journey to be about more than just this climb. Now, you and I are similar to Eric in many ways. We may have eyesight, but we can also be just as blind to the talent we have, to the potential of people on our team or in our family, or to the reality that we can climb to new heights in what we're trying to do. And as a result, we may think that the greatest thing we will ever do is behind us or has been done. 
But like Eric, perhaps what you have done or are doing is part of a greater narrative. And if so, what is that narrative? Because if what we're doing today or will do tomorrow leads to a collective end, then what is that desired end? And this leads us to our topic today, the greatest thing you will ever do. Some may argue that the greatest thing you will ever do is raise good kids or build a remarkable business or live your values to be true to God's way of living or serve other people, and the list goes on. And all of these things are remarkable, noble, and good. I don't believe any of these things are the greatest thing you will ever do. The greatest thing you will ever do is found in the person you become from your efforts in this life. You see, some people believe that heaven, and I believe there is such a place, is partially earned by what you do. And that may or may not be true. But I believe that what will determine our place after we die will be the person we have become. Will we feel comfortable? Will our being there be congruous? Will our nature, who we are, fit in heaven? You see, our greatest quest in life is to become, not just to do. And when you open your eyes to this fact, you start to construct a person the person you want to become. Now, this principle is incredibly important because when you see that as your end goal, you backwards engineer to the things you do and become today in order to reach that desired end outcome. On October 2000, two friends of ours were flying from Taipei, Taiwan to the United States. On the day prior to the departure, they learned a major typhoon, a hurricane, would be hitting Taiwan. While nervous to be departing during the typhoon, they were happy to know that they were flying Singapore Airlines, one of the safest in the Far East, and flying aboard a huge Boeing 747. While a 747 usually holds about 400 passengers, on this day, because of the typhoon, there were only 179 people on board. My friends were seated in the back of the plane. The captain of the flight was Fong Chi Kong an experienced pilot with more than 11,000 hours, with 2,000 hours in the 747. His first officer had 2,400 hours, and the relief pilot had 5,400 hours. And even though there were high winds and heavy rain at 11.15 p.m., traffic control cleared the airplane to take off via runway 5L. But unknowingly, the crew turned and started their takeoff on runway 5R. They had correctly repeated the tower's instructions and confirmed takeoff on runway 5L, but they turned too early onto runway 5R, thinking it was 5L. Runway 5R, however, was under repair. Now, the airport wasn't equipped with ground radar, which allows the controllers to monitor the movement of the aircraft on the ground. And due to the poor visibility, the crew didn't see the construction equipment, including excavators, rollers, a bulldozer, and crane, which were parked on runway 5R. Well, after clearance and a six-second pause, the pilot engaged the full force of the engines to gain the necessary 180 miles per hour to take off in a heavy rainstorm. For 41 seconds, the aircraft sped down the runway, reaching 180 miles per hour. And just as the plane was lifting off the ground, it collided with the machinery and was ripped into pieces. The nose of the plane struck a scoop ladder. The left wing was torn away by a crane, which forced the jet sidewise, slamming it into the ground. The rear section of the fuselage broke away and rolled and slid down the runway. When the plane struck the construction equipment, the fuel stored in the wings exploded, sending balls of fire through the middle section of the plane. 
Immediately, 64 of the 76 passengers in that section burned to death. Most of the passengers in business class on the lower deck died from the impact. On the upper deck, 12 of 19 and one flight attendant died from smoke inhalation from the fire below them. Later, the bodies would be found in and above the stairwell trying to find an exit. All the passengers seated in the rear section of the aircraft survived, including our friends because the rear section of the plane broke off from the rest of the aircraft. Aboard the plane that day were 47 Americans. Among the most notable was John Diaz, the vice president of MP3, who later appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show. And during that interview with Oprah, John said that after the impact of the airplane, as he stood to exit the aircraft, there was this spray of jet fuel, which was like napalm, and whatever it hit, ignited like a torch. Inside the aircraft, it looked like a Dante's Inferno with people strapped into their seats and just burning. And it seemed to look like an aura was leaving their bodies, and some were brighter than others. Well, after witnessing this horrible scene, John says he walked away with a new sense of spirituality. I believe life continues on, he said. I thought, you know, the brightness and dimness of the auras were how one lives one's life, so to speak, and I want to live my life so my aura, when it leaves, is very bright. I think John has it right, that we accumulate light, not just by the good we do, but how we genuinely become a good person or a person of light. Do we seek light? Do we walk towards it? Do we focus on putting ourselves in places where we can grow and learn and become better, brighter people? Well, perhaps the greatest thing we will ever do is to become a person of light or goodness or whatever greatness you believe is yours to become, that you then turn and help others do the same. You know, the scripture says, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all those who are in the house. So if all of this is true, what can we do to change our view from just doing or achieving to becoming and being? Well, a change of perspective can make a difference. It's like two people looking at a city. One is on the ground looking around, and the view is limited by buildings and trees. And the other person is standing atop a tower overlooking the city, and can see the comings and goings of all who live there. Likewise, when you shift your perspective of the greatest thing you will ever do from something you do to something you become, it's like rising above the city and seeing with open eyes. Several years ago, Mary went to the surgeon for a routine ankle surgery, and she was given general anesthesia and went to sleep. The doctors went to administer an antibiotic intravenously, and as they did, Mary arrested. Her monitor showed a flat line and the doctor immediately called a code blue. The operating room and the attending nurses and doctors went into action. The scrub nurse started CPR, but Mary was over 300 pounds and the nurse wasn't tall enough to do the compressions adequately. An OR tech with striking red hair rushed in from the room next door and took over. The redhead tech was young and inexperienced and not doing the compressions well enough to generate a pulse. So the doctor told him to step aside. But the tech didn't move over, and the doctor asked him again. He didn't move. The doctor still couldn't fill a pulse, so in the heat of the moment, he elbowed the tech out of the way. The tech stumbled as the doctor gave him a push, and the doctors forcefully began doing compressions, so much so that he felt the doctor felt her sternum and rib crack. 
Well, after a minute or two, cardiac meds were given to Mary and she regained a heartbeat. Soon, she started to breathe on her own. She didn't regain consciousness until later when she was transferred to the ICU. Cardiologists took over. Tests showed that there was a reaction to the antibiotic that caused her arrest. Well, Mary was in poor condition for several days, but eventually recovered. And at the end of the week, prior to her discharge, her doctor, who was the author of this story, visited her to give her some final instructions to care for her ankle. The doctor said that Mary had always been a bit of a negative person. She often had a dark mood about her, and he fully expected Mary to blame him as the cause of her arrest. But as he spoke with her that day, she was sweet, pleasant, and had a light about her. Before he could speak, she softly and genuinely said, thank you for saving my life. The doctor was a bit caught off guard and sat down. She wasn't the same person he had operated on days earlier. He told Mary it was a team effort. No, she said, I know it was you. I watched you from above the operating room. When my heart stopped, I could feel myself floating above my body, and I watched everything. I saw the young orderly with the red hair come in from the room next door and do CPR, and I saw you push him out of the way, and I saw him stumble as you pushed him. She said, my grandmother, who passed away years before, came to me and told me to be more kind and loving. She said it wasn't my time, and I returned to my body when you started to do CPR. Well, the doctor would later write, I saw Mary back in the office several times after that, and each time, she was the most loving and considerate person I could imagine. Her near-death experience and her conversation with her deceased grandmother gave her a new outlook on life. She became a joy to her widowed father and to everyone she met. Mary is now focused on being different as well as doing different. And the greatest thing she will ever do may just be to become genuinely kind and compassionate. You know, in the scripture, Paul teaches this very principle when he says, God has given to us all we need to use in this life to become like him. We have his character and glory, and yes, even his virtue. And Paul said, we've been given exceeding great and precious promises that will enable us to become who we are to become. And he describes this person we can become, the characteristics that we can possess. They are diligence, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, kindness, and charity. And then he says, if these things be in you and abound, meaning they're a part of you, your life will bear fruit, he says, or yield a comfortable place with God. The point is that the greatest thing you will ever do is to become this type of person. You know, not long ago, I learned about backwards design from a really bright expert in education who teaches at Vanderbilt University. You see, most of us approach life or instruction in a forward design manner, meaning we're designing what is in front of us. In contrast, the backwards design approach considers the end goal first. And when looking at the end goal, then you start to work your way backwards, designing the steps from end to beginning. And if you want to do something powerful in your life, do this exercise. Write the narrative of your life starting with the end then work your way backwards until the present day, each step of the way linking back to the end goal. For example, if Paul is right and these characteristics are those we must possess to be like God or to feel comfortable in heaven, then working backwards, we start to take each one of those characteristics 
and create a map to become a person who possesses it. For example, Paul says faith is something we must possess. It must be part of our makeup. So what is the backwards design of faith? Well, one step back from being a person of faith is to have the habit of faith in our life. One step back from the habit is the courage to try. One step backwards is the language we use, the way we talk to ourselves, and the calculated risks we consider. Another dimension of faith is the dimension of believing in God, meaning faith in the religious context. Working backwards, does God govern your mind, your behavior, your life? Working backwards again, how do you become a person who has a faithful mind? Working again backwards, you see the need for reading, study, prayer, and being with people of faith, and on the design goes. You can see the power of backwards design to help us all do the greatest thing we will ever do. You know, it would be impossible to build a building without architectural design. But what most people don't realize is architects work backwards all the time. They start with the concept, refine it, then apply engineering to ensure it can be built, then on to specifications of each component, then scheduling what comes first in order of construction, then the verification and review of those drawings. So in your quest to become the good and noble person you're seeking to become, have you considered the conceptual design of you? Then what architectural work have you done to give you a path to build your life? Then have you applied engineering to it, set clear goals, modified your behavior, learned all you can? And then what about specifications, the small goals in your life? You can see how that would work. If this is the greatest thing you will ever do in life, who you will become, then perhaps you could pursue that end goal with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength. I call this concept centering. Centering means you center your attention and effort on what is currently your priority. It means that you do that thing with all your heart, your feelings and passion, your might, your energy, your mind, your focus and attention, and your strength, your physical will. If you're reading, give it all your heart and mind. If you're a student in class, give it all your mind and strength. It means to be wholehearted, totally invested and engaged. When I taught business strategy at the Marriott School of Business, I was amazed to see that wholehearted students got so much from my class and half-hearted students took away so little. Both types of students attended class for the same amount of time and both were present for the same discussions, but some left enriched and others indifferent. Best-selling author Anthony Robbins said, one reason so few of us achieve what we want to achieve is that we never direct our focus. We never concentrate our power. In fact, I believe most people fail in life simply because they major in minor things. Well, centering helps us concentrate our power. Imagine you had several tasks to do today, and during the time you set aside to do each task, you did it with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. No distractions, no text messages, no Instagram. You gave each task your whole heart. Would you get more out of your day? Would you learn more? Yes, of course you would. You see, the currency of today isn't time. People think that the scarce commodity of our day is time because we're so busy. But it's not time. It's attention. We have so many distractions in our life, in the palm of our hands and on the screens around us, that we've learned not to focus. And as a result, we rarely find things that influence us. Centering enables us to avoid distraction. 
And it is a talent, and it has the ability to change your life. Let's say that you schedule your day in chunks of time to do certain important things. And what if during each chunk of time you centered entirely on that task? What you'll find is you do more, more efficiently, and quickly. You're a better version of yourself. It works amazingly well in relationships. A father spending 15 minutes of full-centered time with his son is much more effective than a father spending an hour of half-hearted time. Centering gives you a sense of purpose and success. And because you center, you learn more, you feel more, you succeed more, and that success, that feeling, feeds your subsequent actions. Living life as a centered person is immensely more rich and fulfilling than a non-centered person. So imagine a person who's made the decision to start a business. If they center on the critical activities of that business, not just a half-hearted attempt, but a wholehearted immersion, are they more likely to succeed? Of course. The most amazing thing about centering is this. When you get in the habit of centering, you start to apply it to all areas of your life. Relationships improve, your ability to play, to focus, to read, to learn, all improves, and you waste less time moving from task to task. So much of our wasted time each day is spent in transitions from one thing to another, and centered people have the ability to move from thing to thing quickly. So, as we end today, what is the greatest thing you will ever do? Build the you that you know you can become. And this focus, this view will bless your life. Start becoming the person you want to be. And eventually you'll look back at that person you were and be grateful you made the decision to focus on building a better you. And Ralph Waldo Emerson said it best when he said, the only person you are destined to become is the person you decide to be. Most of all, thanks for being with us today. And be sure to join us next week as we seek to open our eyes to who and what we can become.